Welcome to Context for Christ. This is the podcast that puts scriptures taken out of context back into context to give us a better understanding of God's Word. This is also the podcast that discusses theological and biblical topics and addresses false teaching. Thank you guys for being here, for tuning in to the Context for Christ podcast. I'm your host, Jacob Garcia. This is your first time. Thank you for tuning in. You can follow me on Spotify, Anger Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and also Apple Podcasts. And in today's episode, we are going to be talking about a very big controversial topic within Christianity, and that is the topic of the gift of tongues. Today is probably going to be a longer episode than normal because we are going to be looking at quite a bit of scripture. We're going to be going through Acts chapter 2 verses 1 through 21, Acts 10 verses 44 through 46, Acts 19 verse 5 through 7, 1 Corinthians 14, Isaiah 28, we will be looking at that briefly, not the entire chapter, just a few verses, and this is all going to tie in in the end. And what I want to do today is three things. One, we are going to be looking at what the gift of speaking in tongues is, and I'm going to be giving my best definition of it according to what we see presented in the Word, what the purpose of the gift of tongues is or was, how is it supposed to be practiced in the church. Second thing we'll be doing is looking at the out-of-context passages that people people will use to argue that every Christian can do it as long as you just ask for it or... Every Christian must speak in tongues, which will be Romans 8, verses 26 through 27, and Jude 1, verse 20. The third thing we're going to do is we're going to end with looking at the false beliefs and false ideas concerning tongues. For example, some people believe that speaking in tongues makes you more spiritual, makes you closer to God, and it's extra powerful, apparently against Satan. It's needed for every believer. More extreme case, some people believe that you need to speak in tongues or else if you don't, then you're not saved. Another false idea we'll be looking at is the idea that all you need to do is just ask for the gift and God will give it to you. And we'll be looking at the tongues of angels that are mentioned in 1 Corinthians 13. And is this a heavenly language? So first, let's start out with what the gift of tongues is. The best definition I can give is it's the miraculous ability to speak in a language one has not previously learned. So this is a language that is given to someone. God gives them utterance of this language, but it's a language that they have not previously learned before. So for example, I speak English. God would give me utterance to speak, let's say, Swahili, and I don't even know Swahili. I've never learned it. I don't know a thing about it, but yet God gives me the ability and the utterance to speak it. One of the things I want to mention is that, and this is something I used to believe, I used to believe that the gift of tongues or speaking in tongues was primarily given by God for the purpose of preaching the gospel. So someone who doesn't speak my language can hear it. But as we'll see, that's actually not what tongues is for. It's not for preaching the gospel. So let me show you real quick. Let's go to Acts chapter 2. We'll only be looking at verses 1 through 13 right now. We will come back to verses 14 through 21 later when we go into 1 Corinthians 14. So it says, On the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Suddenly there came a sound from heaven, a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. So one what? One tongue, one language sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. This wasn't the Holy Spirit speaking through them. The text clearly says here in verse 4 that they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So this is not God speaking through them. This was the Spirit giving them utterance, giving them the ability to speak in these different languages that they have not known. And real quick, go look up the word tongues in Greek, what the original Greek word for tongues was, and you will see that it was known languages. Not known to them, the guys who were speaking it, because they had not known these languages before. But as we're going to see as we go on, it was known to the people who were listening. So let's go. Verse 5, And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men, from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together. 
and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to each other, Look, are not all these all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? And then verses 9 through 11 is going to give a list of the different ethnicities that were there. Parthians and, and Medes, things like you say it, Medes, and Alamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them speaking in our tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to each other, what could this mean? Verse 13, we'll end here on this passage. Others mocked them, saying, they are full of new wine. So they're accusing them of being drunk. Those who were accusing them of being drunk obviously did not understand a word they were saying. But the ones who did hear in their own language, as we saw, what did they hear? So again, I said that speaking in tongues was not the ability to preach the gospel in a language you didn't know. What do they say here in verse 11? We hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So this was not preaching the gospel. These men who were speaking in tongues by the utterance given to them by the Spirit were speaking the wonderful works of God. They were praising God for the wonderful works that he did. So this was them praying to the Lord in different languages that they had not known. But the people that were there, a lot of them heard it in their own language. And it was the Spirit who gave them utterance. Now, just again, this was not preaching the gospel. They were praying to God and praising him for the wonderful works that he did. His attributes, this could be a bunch of things. But the bottom line here is that this was not preaching the gospel. Second thing I want to point out is that this event of Pentecost, this was a sovereign act of God. What I mean by that is this is something that God brought to them by himself. This was not prayed for. There's nothing in the verses here that say that these men prayed for God to do this. They didn't pray for it. They didn't summon God to do it. They didn't get to the right spiritual mindset, so to speak, to have this occur. This came through God's sovereignty. He did it. They didn't pray for it. They didn't ask for it. They weren't summoning for it. They weren't doing something to try and make this happen. No, God did this by himself. God did this. He brought it. This was his sovereign act. And as we'll see later on when we get back to it, verses 14 through 21, Peter is going to explain what's going on. He's going to quote from Joel 21. So basically, this was prophesied to happen in Joel 21. God prophesied this was going to happen. Sorry, Joel prophesied this was going to happen. And he obviously prophesied because God told him it was going to happen. And here it is happening. But this was not something that was prayed for or asked for. This is something God did by himself. And just as another, just as two more examples Going back to the first point I made, how this was not preaching the gospel, go to, let's go to Acts 10, verse 44. It says, while Peter was still speaking these words, so just, as, just real quick, as some context, Peter is at the house of Cornelius. Cornelius was a Gentile. And in verse 44, while Peter was still speaking these words, and so what was he speaking? He was speaking the gospel to them. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell on those who heard the word, and those of the circumcision who believed were astonished. As many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Again, they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. So again, now now the Holy Spirit has fallen upon the Gentiles now. And he's given them utterance to speak with tongues. But notice they're not preaching the gospel. The only ones who were here were the Gentiles, the house of Cornelius, the other ones that were there were Peter and the men that were with him. So Peter and his men were already believers. So Peter was preaching the gospel to the house of Cornelius. And it's interesting how it says that while he was still speaking. So he didn't he didn't preach the gospel, stop, and then the Spirit came. No, he was. it says while he was speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon those who heard the word. Who are those who heard the word? The Gentiles, the house of Cornelius. And those of the circumcision... Who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter. Who were these guys? These were Jews, just like Peter. These were Jewish Christians. Because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they, the men who were with Peter, those of the circumcision, heard them, the Gentiles, 
speak with tongues and magnify God. So suddenly these Gentiles were given the ability to speak in different languages, but they were praying to God. They were glorifying God. They were magnifying him. So they were praying to him, praising him for his wonderful works, just like the other men in Acts 2 did. Another example, last one I will look at, is Acts 19, where Paul and Apollos come to Ephesus. They found some disciples who are just recent converts. They believed. And then Paul asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit? We don't know if there's a Holy Spirit. They said, verse 5, these men were baptized. And when Paul laid hands on them, verse 6, when Paul laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. And the men were about 12 in all. Now, the only description we have here is that they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now, one might be thinking, well, there's nothing there that says that they are praying to God, that they were glorifying God. But if we want to believe that the writer of the, of the book of Acts is being consistent here, he said in Acts 2 that the men who were speaking in tongues were praising God and glorifying God for his wondrous works. They're speaking about the wonderful works of God. Then in Acts 10, what we just read, it says that they were speaking in tongues and magnifying God. So again, they were praising God through this miraculous gift God had given them to speak in tongues. And so now we get to Acts 19, there's no reason now to explain what they were saying while speaking in tongues, because he'd already explained it before, so why explain it again? We have to believe that the writer of Acts is being consistent. Again, the gift of tongues was not preaching the gospel, it was praying to God. I want to make that very clear. Now, let's get into how was this supposed to be practiced, and what was the purpose of speaking in tongues? And we're going to find that in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. We're going to read the whole thing. I'm probably not going to go verse by verse because I don't want this to be too exhaustive. But I am going to read the whole thing, probably go section by section. So just as some context for the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul is addressing many problems that are going on in the church of Corinth. The majority of these believers in Corinth were came from pagan backgrounds. The vast majority of them were Gentiles. They believed in other gods. And so Paul's addressing a lot of issues that are going on in this church at this time. And they even wrote a letter to Paul asking him questions. And he addresses those questions, but he addresses them later on after he gets through indicting them and chastising them for their wickedness. And then when you get to chapter 12, chapter 12 through 14 should really be read together. And I did read all these together in preparation for this episode. We don't have time to go through every single chapter right now. But just as some context, in chapter 12... The Apostle Paul then addresses the issue of spiritual gifts. And he basically talks about how, although there's a variety of different gifts, we're all part of the same body. What was happening was, is that the church in Corinth, these Corinthian believers, because they had come from pagan backgrounds, they thought someone who had the gift of tongues and someone who had the gift of prophecy had two different spirits. And they did this with all the gifts, not just those two, but all the gifts. Paul gives a list of them. There's administrations, there's teaching, there's a word of wisdom, word of knowledge, a bunch of other gifts. And the Corinthians were thinking that, you have this gift, you must have a different spirit than this guy over here. But Paul corrects them and says, no, we all have the same spirit. The same Holy Spirit distributes all of these gifts. So they're from the same spirit, the same Lord, the same God. And so he corrects them on that. Then you get into chapter 13 and then he talks about how the greatest gift we should all be striving for is the gift of love because he starts out by saying if i speak in the tongues of angels if i have all mysteries if i have all knowledge if i give my body up to be burned but i don't have love then nothing matters then none of those things that i just said matter that's his point so he's saying basically these gifts that you guys are contributing in none of these matter if you don't have love and that's his point in chapter 13 now he gets into chapter 14 and he starts out by saying pursue love because he just got through talking about it in chapter 13 he says verse 1 chapter 14 pursue love and desire spiritual gifts but especially that you may prophesy we're not going to talk about what prophecy is in here because this is not what this episode is about verse 2 for he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to god for no one understands him. However, in the spirit he speaks mysteries. So Paul says, desire spiritual gifts, pursue love, but especially that you may prophesy. Why does Paul want these Corinthian believers to desire prophecy more than speaking in tongues? Because he says, verse 2, because he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. 
for no one understands him. However, in the spirit he speaks mysteries. Here, Paul clearly understood what speaking in tongues was and what the gift of it was. It was not preaching the gospel. We saw that in Acts 2, the men were praising God, were praying to God in different tongues. We saw it in Acts 10, they were speaking in tongues and magnifying God. It's the same in Acts 19. And Paul here says, For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands him. However, in the spirit he speaks mysteries. Now, it's very important to point out when he says in the spirit, this is not the Holy Spirit. If you go read it, the word spirit there is not capitalized. When he says in the spirit, he's talking about our own human spirit. We do have a spirit, and this is the spirit he's talking about. He's not talking about the Holy Spirit. Verse 3, but he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. So this is why Paul wants them to pursue prophecy more than speaking in tongues. Because he says speaking in tongues, verse 4, he who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. But he who prophesies edifies the church. I wish you all spoke with tongues, but even more that you prophesied. For he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues, unless indeed he interprets that the church may receive edification. And so what Paul is getting at here is that he who prophesies is speaking to men. He's speaking to the church. He speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. But he who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. Now, those who are cessationists, which by the way, if you don't know what cessationist means, basically it's someone who believes that the gifts of prophecy, speaking in tongues, interpretation of tongues, gifts of healing have ceased. They call these the apostolic gifts, but they say that these gifts have ceased. They're no longer in operation today. I do not fall under that camp. I would call myself not a strict cessationist. I don't believe these certain gifts in particular are necessary for today. However, I cannot say with certainty that they have completely ceased. I believe God can still do whatever he wishes. God's in the heaven. He does whatever he pleases. I believe he'll do whatever he wants for his purposes. But with that said, those who are cessationists like John Piper, I'm sorry, not John Piper, John MacArthur, John MacArthur, Justin Peters, which I love these men. You know, I have nothing but respect for them. I learned a lot from them. But they would say that when Paul says here that he who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, they take that to mean that Paul is criticizing the Corinthian believers. In other words, what Paul is saying here is he's saying, you who speak in a tongue, you're just edifying yourself. You just want to make yourself seen and you just want to put yourself on display. But I, I got, I love MacArthur. I love Justin Peters, but I have to disagree with that, with their take on this verse, because I don't see anywhere in here where Paul's criticizing them. And we're going to get into that later because it wouldn't make sense if Paul's criticizing them if later on he tells them, don't forbid speaking in tongues. I think Paul is basically explaining why they should desire prophecy more than speaking in tongues because they said he who speaks in a tongue edifies himself which is not a bad thing paul doesn't say this is sinful he doesn't say this is bad edification is good then he says i wish you all spoke with tongues but i wish even more that you prophesied instead for he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks in tongues unless indeed he interprets interprets what interprets the tongues he's speaking in that the church may receive edification but now, verse 6, brethren, if I come to you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you unless I speak to you either by revelation, by knowledge, by prophesying, or by teaching? So his point there is, if I come to you speaking in tongues, basically speaking in a language that you don't understand, what's that going to profit you? You would be profited more if I came to you speaking either by revelation, by knowledge, by prophesying, or teaching. Then verse 7, he gives an illustration, even things without life, whether flute or harp, when they make a sound, unless they make a distinction in the sounds, how will it be known to you what is piped or played? For if the trumpet makes an uncertain sound, meaning a sound you don't know, who's going to prepare for battle? So likewise, you, unless you utter by the tongue words easy to understand, how will it be known what is spoken? In other words, if you come into the church and you're speaking in tongues and no one understands what you're saying, what good is that, he says? For you will be speaking to the air, he says in verse 9. Now verse 10, there are, it might be, so many different kinds of languages in the world, but not any of them is without significance. Verse 11, therefore, if I do not know the meaning of the language, I shall be a foreigner to him who speaks, and he who speaks will be a foreigner to me. Even so you, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, let it be for the edification of the church that you seek to excel. So Paul ends this part of the discussion by saying, since you're so eager, you're so eager for spiritual gifts, let it be for the, for the edification of the church that you seek to excel. In verse 4 he says, he who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. But Paul says here in verse 
12. Since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, let it be for the edification of the church that you seek to excel. So he's not indicting speaking in tongues to edify yourself, but what he is saying is that you should be zealous for the spiritual gifts for the purpose of edifying the church. Remember, he ends verse 5 by saying that he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks in tongues unless he interprets that the church may receive edification. So we're going to see more of what he means there. So verse 13, Therefore, let him who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. Why? Verse 14, Because if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. Now, when I was doing preparation for this episode, I listened to a sermon from David Guzik from Enduring Word, which, by the way, I highly recommend you guys check out the app, Enduring Word. He's got commentaries on every single book, every single chapter of the Bible. I found his work to be very helpful. I don't agree with him on everything he says, but his resources have been very helpful. And I listened to his sermon on this chapter. And he says here, then in verse 14, he says, For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. So his take on this is that Paul is saying that if I pray in a tongue, my spirit is the one who's praying, but my understanding is unfruitful. Meaning, I don't know what I'm saying when I pray in a tongue. I don't know what I'm saying. So my understanding is, is unfruitful. It profits me nothing. And I actually agree with that, with David Guzik on that one. Then Paul says, verse 15, What is the conclusion then? I will pray with the spirit. And I will also pray with the understanding. I will sing with the Spirit. I will also sing with the understanding. So that's why Paul says, let him who speaks in a tongue also pray that he may interpret. So just real quick, if you're listening to this, you're someone who's been given the gift of speaking in tongues. For full disclosure, I have not been given that gift. I'm totally fine with that. God says in 1 Corinthians 12 that the Holy Spirit distributes the gifts to those whom he wills. So it's not something we can pray for. It's something that the Holy Spirit gives to whom he wills. But if you're listening to this and you're someone who has spoken in tongues, you pray in tongues, that's between you and God. We have an exhortation here from the Apostle Paul, the inspired Apostle Paul, who says, let him who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. If you're speaking in tongues, you're praying to God in a tongue, but you have no idea what you're saying, Paul says, pray that you also may interpret too. Let's move on. Verse 16 Otherwise, if you bless with the Spirit, so again, the Spirit here is not the Holy Spirit, it's your own human spirit. If you bless with the Spirit, how will he who occupies the place of the uninformed say amen at your giving of thanks, since he has no idea what you just said, since he does not understand what you say? For indeed you give thanks well, but the other, the one who does not understand what you're saying, is not edified. Here's what Paul says. Paul says, verse 18, 19, I thank my God that I speak with tongues more than any of you. Yet in the church, I would rather speak five words with my understanding that I may also teach others than 10,000 words in a tongue. I would rather speak five words that I can understand, that I can interpret, and also share with you so that you may be edified to teach you. I would rather do that than to speak 10,000 words in a tongue and I have no idea what I'm saying. And honestly, that's how it should be. If you have the gift of speaking in tongues... Pray that God would give you interpretation, not just for yourself, but also for others. Now, if you're in your own house, your own private prayer closet, so to speak, and you're praying in a tongue, probably not a big deal if you don't ask for interpretation, okay? But if you're in the church body, you're in the church setting, definitely pray that you may interpret so you can teach others. That's what Paul says here. Now, let's get into verse 20 here. Brethren, do not be children in understanding. However, in malice, be babies. But in understanding, be mature. In the law it is written, so Paul's going to quote from the Old Testament now, with men of other tongues and other lips, I will speak to this people, and yet for all that they will not hear me, says the Lord. Therefore, verse 22, tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophesying is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. Therefore, if the whole church comes together in one place, and all speak with tongues, and there come in those who are uninformed or unbelievers, will they not say that you're out of your mind? But if all prophesy, and an unbeliever or uninformed person comes in, he is convinced by all, he is convicted by all, and thus the secrets of his heart are revealed, and so, falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. So why does Paul quote from the Old Testament here? In verse 21, he says, In the law it is written, With men of other tongues and other lips, I will speak to this people, and yet for all that they will not hear me. Well, Paul's quoting from Isaiah 28. And let's read the verse that he's quoting from. And 
It's verse 11 through 12. He says, For with stammering lips and another tongue he will speak to this people, to whom he said, This is the rest with which you may cause the weary to rest. And this is the refreshing, yet they would not hear. So if Paul is quoting from Isaiah 28, as I've heard Justin Peters say, we have to assume that he's quoting within the context of Isaiah 28. Now let's look at Isaiah 28 real quick. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but just the beginning of it. Isaiah says, with inspiration of God, he says, Woe to the crown of pride, to the drunkards of Ephraim, whose glorious beauty is a fading flower who is at the head of the verdant valleys to those who are overcome with wine. In other words, given into drunkenness. But the word there, woe to the crown of pride, to the drunkards of Ephraim. The word woe there is a pronouncement of judgment. So God's pronouncing judgment on Ephraim, which is a tribe of Israel. Behold, the Lord has a mighty and strong one, like a tempest of hail and a destroying storm, like a flood of mighty waters overflowing. Who will bring them down to the earth with his hand? The crown of pride, the drunkards of Ephraim, will be trampled underfoot. And the glorious beauty is a fading flower which is at the head of the verdant valley, like the first fruit before the summer, which an observer sees, he eats up, he eats it up while it is still at his ha- in his hand. And the day of the Lord of hosts will be for a crown of glory and diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people, for a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment, and for strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. So what is the context here? context here is judgment upon Ephraim, upon Israel. And that's why God says in verse 11 and 12, for with stammering lips and another tongue, he will speak to this people to whom he said, this is the rest with which you may cause the weary to rest. And this is the refreshing yet they would not hear, but the word of the Lord was with them. Verse 13, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here little, there little, that they may go and fall backward and be broken and snared and caught. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scornful men, who rule this people who are in Jerusalem. Because you have said, we have made a covenant with death, and with Sheol we are in agreement. When the overflowing scourge passes through, it will not come to us, for we have made lies our refuge, and under falsehood we have hidden ourselves. Therefore, says the Lord God, behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not act hastily. I'm not going to read the rest of it. The bottom line here is that this gift of tongues was a sign, Paul says, was a sign for unbelievers. And then he quotes Isaiah 28. And the context of Isaiah 28 is judgment upon Israel. So what were tongues a sign for? What were they a sign of? It was a sign of judgment upon Israel. Let's go back to Acts 2, verses 14 through 21. And this is where Peter is going to give an explanation of what is going on. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, so who's he saying to? He's saying to the ones who are mocking what they're seeing. So these guys are speaking in tongues, and a bunch of men there are are like, you know, we're hearing them speak the works of God in our own language. But then other men are saying they're full of new wine, they're drunk. But Peter, standing with the twelve, raised his voice and said to them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, Let this be known to you, and heed my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. So, Peter says, verse 16, This is what was spoken. This, what you see happening right here, these men speaking in tongues, what you see happening right here in front of you, this is what was prophesied by Joel. And now, Peter is going to quote Joel 21. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Real quick, by the way, this all flesh here is not every single human being on the face of the earth. This all flesh is talking about Jews and Gentiles. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall see dreams. And on my my men's servants and my my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And they shall prophesy. And listen to what Listen to what Joel says next. Peter's quoting from Joel 21. He's still quoting. Listen to what Joel says next. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so Peter's quoting from Joel. Joel's from the Old Testament. 
Joel uses this this phrase of day of the Lord, where he calls it the great and awesome day of the Lord, or the Hebrew name for the Lord here is the great and awesome day of Yahweh. In the Old Testament, whenever it talks about the day of the Lord, it was always talking about the day of God's judgment. It was never a good thing. And this wasn't a generic day of judgment for God. No, there was many there was many days of the Lord in the Old Testament. Just go read. Joel here, with inspiration from God, with the prophecy from that God has given him, he says, before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. So what's going to be before God's coming in judgment? He's going to pour out his spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters are going to prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall see dreams. On my men servants and maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. They shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth, in the earth beneath. What are these signs and wonders? blood and fire and vapor of smoke the sun shall be turned to darkness the moon to blood this is judgment language this kind of language about blood and fire and vapor of smoke and the sun being turned to darkness and the and the moon being turned into blood red this kind of language is used often throughout the old testament to describe god's judgment now i don't believe this is being literal this is to to best explain it the way i can this was hyperbolic language god used to describe just how how dreadful his judgment was going to be on those to on those whom he was going to bring it on, which in this case he's going to bring it on Jerusalem. If you go and read Joel twenty one, we're not going to do it right now because we've already gone gone for quite a while. Go and read Joel twenty one. You're going to see that it's judgment language against Israel, against Jerusalem. So what's the point here about speaking in tongues? Well, again, Peter says what you see happening here, these men speaking in tongues is what was prophesied by Joel. This is what Joel was talking about. And I'll say just in passing, that also means that this event of Pentecost is unrepeatable. It's not going to happen again. It was prophesied by Joel to happen. And then came the time in Acts 2 where it actually did happen. And there's no need for it to happen again. Because Jerusalem was judged. Israel was destroyed. In AD 70, the Romans ransacked the city of Jerusalem. They destroyed them which is what Jesus said was going to happen in Matthew 24. Go, go read Matthew 24, Luke 21, Mark 13, I believe. Jesus talks about how the temple is going to be destroyed. He says in Luke, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, flee to the Christians. He says, get out of there because judgment's going to happen. And that's what happened. So these speaking in tongues in this time were a sign to unbelieving Israel that they were about to be judged. God was about to bring the hammer of judgment down on them. So this should have been terrifying to them in this time. And here, 1 Corinthians 14, that's what Paul gets to. He says, tongues are a sign for those who are unbelievers. And he quotes Isaiah 28. And so let's continue. Verse 26, How is it then, brethren, whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, a teaching, a tongue, has a revelation or interpretation? Let all these things be done for edification. Now, here is where we're going to get into how this was supposed to be practiced, how speaking in tongues was supposed to be practiced. If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two or at the most three, each in turn, and let one interpret. So Paul clearly says here in the church, the way that they get to tongues is supposed to be practiced is let there be two or at the most three people, one at a time, that's what each in turn means, one at a time speak, and let one interpret. Verse 28, but if there is no interpreter, let him, one who speaks in tongue, keep silent in church and let him speak to himself and to God. So here we see that Paul is not saying that there's no interpreter, don't speak in tongues, be quiet. But what he is saying is if there's no interpreter, don't be speaking out loud for everyone to hear you. No one's going to understand you. No one's going to be edified. So don't be praying in tongues out loud for everyone else to hear you. If there's no interpreter, no one's going to understand what you're saying. So be quiet and speak to yourself and to God. In other words, you can do it in your mind. You can do it very softly. So here we clearly see that Paul is not against speaking in tongues. He's not forbidding it. What he's doing is he's bringing order to how this gift is supposed to be used. So he's definitely not against it. He's not forbidding it. He's not criticizing them speaking in tongues, as I've heard other people say. I don't think Paul's criticizing them at all. I don't see anything in this text that would indicate he's criticizing them. He's explained to them what tongues does for edification for yourself, and that if you're going to speak in a tongue out loud, pray that you may interpret so that you can edify others as well. But if there is no interpreter, then just pray to yourself and to God. 29, let two or three prophets speak and let the others judge. But if anything is revealed to another who sits by, let the first one keep silent, for you can all prophesy one by one, that all may learn and be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. What does that mean? Just in passing, 
The spirits, meaning the human spirits, of the prophets are subject to the prophets. There's this practice, this false practice and idea, you know, especially in a lot of, not all of them, but in a lot of Pentecostal churches and stuff, especially like hyper-charismatic, like people of Bethel, where they will actually, everyone in the congregation, they will tell everyone in the congregation, start speaking in tongues or start prophesying. They'll all do it at once, all of them, hundreds of them, all at the same time. We've already seen here that Paul is against that. He says, let two or three speak at the, uh, two or three at the most speak. No more than that. One at a time speak. And with the prophets, it's the same thing. He says, let the two or three prophets speak. Everyone else judge. For you can all prophesy one by one, that all may learn and be encouraged. But just think about going into a church building and seeing every person in the congregation speaking in tongues together or all prophesying at the same time. That's not in order. That's not under self-control. There's, I've even seen clips of people who supposedly are speaking in tongues out loud and it's it's uncontrollable. They can't stop. Again, the idea that the Holy Spirit is praying through you, that's not, that's not biblical. That's not what tongues is. It's the Spirit giving you utterance, giving you the ability to do it. But it has to always be under self-control. And that's what Paul means here when he says the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. Meaning what? It's not going to be uncontrollable. The Holy Spirit's not going to overtake you and just make it totally uncontrollable. You have no control over. No, that's not how, that's not how God works. And Paul follows up on that in verse 33. says, for God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. So this has to be exercised with self-control. If it's uncontrollable and you and you just, you just can't stop, then that's a sin issue for you. That's not the Spirit doing it. That's you. Verse 34, let your women keep silent in the churches, for they're not permitted to speak, but are to be submissive, as the law also says. If they want to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is shameful for, for women to speak in church. We're not going to talk about that right now. It's not what this episode's about. You already know my stance on female pastors. Go listen to my, my episodes on that. Or did the word of God come originally from you? Or was it only you that it reached? If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. But if anyone is, anyone is ignorant, let him be ignorant. Verse 39, very last verse. Therefore, brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy and do not forbid to speak with tongues. Let all things be done decently and in order. Going back to the very beginning, when Paul says he who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, the idea that Paul is criticizing them in that verse, I disagree with, because if that were the case, why would he end here with saying, do not forbid to speak with tongues? So I don't believe Paul is criticizing them. I think he's actually encouraging them. But he's saying desire earnestly to prophesy, but also don't forbid speaking in tongues either. But let all these things be done decently and in order, not uncontrollably, not everyone doing it at the same time, do it decently and in order. Two at the most three, and let one interpret. If there's no interpreter, then be silent and speak to yourself and to God. Don't be speaking out loud for everyone else to hear you if there's no interpreter. Then he says, let him who speaks in a tongue also pray that he may interpret. So we see that Paul is clearly for the gift of speaking in tongues. We also have to keep in mind here that this gift was something that was given by the Holy Spirit as he saw fit. This is not something somebody can pray for. It's not something somebody can ask for. I hear that a lot. Like, if you want it, you can have it. You can ask for it. God will give it to you. No, that's not what the scriptures say. You can't point me to any verse that says that. Verse Corinthians 12 is very clear, and it says that the Holy Spirit distributes the gifts among his people as he wills. Now, that's out of the way. I want to look at some passages that are taken out of context that have nothing to do with praying in tongues, or speaking in tongues, for that matter. The first one I want to look at is Romans 8, specifically verses 26 to 27. Paul says, Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And so some people often use this and say that the groanings which cannot be uttered here are tongues. It's the Spirit speaking through us, and it's tongues. But again, we've already established through the passages we've covered that one is not the spirit speaking through you like the gift of tongues is not god's spirit speaking through you again it's god giving you utterance giving you the ability to do it but the second thing here is what is what is the context here what is this verse saying well just as a quick overview romans 8 is about being free from indwelling sin basically talking about who we are in christ now now that christ says you know free us from our sins who we are in christ you know we're sons and daughters with christ the tribulations we deal with are building us up for perseverance for the day of glory but in verses 26 you know it talks about prayer 
He says, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. We do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us. What does making intercession mean? So the idea of making intercession here is not the Holy Spirit speaking through you with groanings that cannot be uttered. And notice it says, cannot be uttered. So in other words, they can't be spoken. The Spirit is the one who's praying here. Verse 27, he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. What does this mean? When we're in a moment where we where we go to pray to God, but we don't know what to pray for, sometimes you know we, we've all had this moment where our mind is just blank. We don't know what to pray for. We don't know what to say. The Holy Spirit understands that we're human, that we're gonna have moments where we don't know what to pray for, and so what does He do? He prays for us. He doesn't pray through us, but He's the one who's praying to the Father for us on our behalf. That's what making intercession means. Like for example, when you pray for somebody. You're praying for somebody, whether it's for their health, whatever it is, you know, you're making intercession for them. You're not praying through them, but you're, but you're praying to God about them. You're praying to God for them. That's what the spirit does here. When we don't know what to pray for as we ought, we would have, we have nothing to say. The spirit, because he knows what the will of God is, he prays to the father for us. He's praying probably for God to sanctify us. He's praying for God to help us but he is not praying through us. He's not speaking through us and then we're making these groanings. No, these are the gro- these groanings are something the Spirit is doing, not us. So this is not about tongues. Second passage, Jude 20. And I say Jude 20 because there's only one chapter of Jude. So it's easier just to say Jude 20, but technically it's Jude chapter 1, verse 20. Jude says, But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And so the idea here is that praying in the Holy Spirit means praying in tongues. Now, if you go and read the book of Jude, it's very short, it's only one chapter, you will see that tongues is nowhere mentioned in here. There's nothing in here about spiritual gifts. There's nothing in here about how to pray in tongues. And there's nothing in here about speaking in tongues. But what does Jude say? He says, verse 20, but you, because he just got through talking about how there's going to be apostates in the last times. And he says, but you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. So the idea here that praying in the Holy Spirit means praying in tongues is not true. That's not what Jude says here. You cannot take praying in the Holy Spirit and jump over to all the way to Romans 8 about the Spirit making intercession with groanings that cannot be uttered and say, that's what praying in the Spirit is. No, we need to look at what this, the verses and scriptures say in their immediate context. And by immediate, I mean, you can't take a verse here in one in one passage and try to connect it to a, to a verse in a completely different book. Yes, scripture interprets scripture, but we what we must we have to understand what a verse is talking about in its immediate context first. We can't pull a verse out of one chapter and try to say this is what it means by quoting another verse in, in another book. We need to know what the verse means in the context of the passages in, the context of the chapter, then the context of the whole book, and then the context of the rest of scripture. That's how we understand God's word correctly. And so what Jude says here, praying in the Holy Spirit, and then verse 21, he says, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. So how do you do that? How do you keep yourselves in the love of God? How do you look unto the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life? By building yourselves up in your most holy faith, by praying in the Holy Spirit. So the question is, what is praying in the Holy Spirit? Well, you can't say that praying in the Holy Spirit is speaking in tongues. That's not what Jude says. That's that's nowhere in this passage at all. Praying in the Holy Spirit, I believe, is praying under the influence of the Spirit. That doesn't mean the Holy Spirit is telling you what to say, but praying by the leading of God's Spirit, of God's will. And how do we know God's will? We know His will by reading His Word. Remember Jesus said, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So I think praying in the Holy Spirit means praying according to God's Word, according to His will. This is not about tongues. The very last passage I want to look at, actually, I'm not going to look at it right now because I've gone on for quite a while now. I don't want this to be too long. But just as a quick, brief passing, 
Mark 16, verses 17 through 18 says that these signs shall accompany those who believe. They shall speak in new tongues. They shall um, lay their hands on the sick and be healed. If they drink any deadly poison, it will not harm them. If they pick up venomous snake, it will not harm them. That's basically that. That's the gist of that passage right there. Two things. One, if you look in any study Bible or you look up contextual background of Mark 16, you will notice that the vast majority of scholars will say that Mark 16 verses 9 through 20 were not recorded in the earliest manuscripts of the scriptures. So technically, that passage, not saying it shouldn't be there, but in the earliest manuscripts of the scriptures, when they were going through the canon trying to, deciding what belongs in the word of God, what doesn't, you know, that's just like a brief way of explaining what they were doing. In the earliest manuscripts, Mark 16 verses 9 through 20 were not in there. But now, in all the Bibles, they are. But let's just say, for the sake of argument, let's, let's just assume that, you know, it's it's supposed to be there, okay? The idea is that when it says, though, these signs shall accompany those who believe, they want to take that and say, this is about all believers. This is for all believers. And it says that those who believe will speak in new tongues, they will heal lay their hands on the sick and heal people, they will pick up poisonous snakes and will not, and not get hurt, they will drink poisonous stuff and it will not, will not harm them. Here's the problem with that. Why would Jesus say that all believers are going to speak in new tongues? But in 1 Corinthians 14, no, no, sorry, 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says, he asks a list of rhetorical questions. And he says, all do not speak in tongues, do they? All do not prophesy, do they? All do not have gifts of healing, do they? What's the obvious answer to those questions? No. That's the whole point of 1 Corinthians 12. Paul is saying, not everyone has the same gift, but just because you have different gifts, we're all from the same God, but they're all from the same Spirit. But the Spirit gives different gifts to different Christians. Not all Christians have the same gift. So if you want to argue that Jesus in there, in Mark 16, meant that every believer is going to speak in tongues, every believer is going to heal, then why would one of his apostles say something different? And so either one of them is lying or your understanding of what Jesus meant is false. And because we know Jesus doesn't lie, because we know God's word is, is the truth, it's our interpretation that, need, that needs to be checked. So, when Jesus said those who believe, these signs will accompany those who believe, the best way to interpret that is Jesus meant those who believe the apostles' teaching. Because if you go look through the rest of the, old, uh, the, rest of the New Testament, we do see that there are those who believed that spoken tongues, there are those who are, we know, we know Peter and the Apostle Paul, they laid their hands on the sick and people were healed. And we also know there's one account where I believe it was Paul, could, could have been Peter, I don't know for sure, one of them was bitten by a snake and he was healed. It didn't, it didn't, it didn't harm him. But that's the only account we have of anyone being bit with a snake and not, and not being harmed. But we have no record in the New Testament at all all of anyone drinking anything poisonous and not harming them. So Mark 16 verses 70 through 18 cannot be taken as a blanket statement about all believers. It doesn't work. To end this episode, I want to talk about the false beliefs and ideas concerning tongues. I'll try to be as brief as I can in talking about these things. The first false idea I want to talk about is the idea that speaking in tongues or praying in tongues makes you more spiritual or makes you closer to God. No one will, nobody will probably say it makes you more spiritual, but that's the idea. That's, that's the implication. Or they'll say that this puts you on an, another, an extra level, a higher level of your relationship with God. And what they're implying is that those who don't speak in tongues, they're not as close to God as I am. That's essentially what their implications are. They might not mean it that way. That might not be their intention, but that's what they are implying. This is a false idea. The scriptures, the scriptures do not teach that speaking in tongues or praying in tongues makes you more spiritual. It sank, or it makes you more, it makes you more closer to God than anybody else. That's nowhere in, in the scriptures. Okay, so if you believe that, I'm sorry, you're wrong, and you need you, you need to repent of that. Second thing is that they say that praying in tongues is extra powerful in spiritual warfare against Satan. There's nowhere in scripture where it says that. You cannot point me to any passage that says that at all. Third thing, and this is one of the extreme, far extreme ideas, is that every believer needs to speak in tongues. That's not true. Paul said clearly, not everyone speaks in tongues, do they? 
or they'll say that you need to speak in tongues in, in, in order to be saved, or that if you don't speak in tongues, or that, or sorry, that speaking in tongues is evidence of your salvation, or it's evidence that you have the Holy Spirit. That's not true. That is not true. Paul says in Galatians, the evidence that you have the Spirit is the fruit it produces. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. I don't see how much more clear you can get than that. The other idea is that all you got to do is just ask for it. God will give it to you. If you, if you want to get the tongues, you can have it. Just just, just pray and just, just, just ask and God will give it to you. That's not true either. 1 Corinthians 12, go read it. Don't take my word for it. Go read it yourself. 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says the Holy Spirit distributes different gifts to each believer as he sees fit, as he, as he wills, not as we will, not according to our desire, not according to our will, according to his will. The idea is that there's such thing as tongues of angels. And what they will quote is 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. They'll say that, see, there's such thing as tongues of angels, and that, you know, we can speak in tongues of angels. But that's not what Paul's getting at. He's not teaching that there's such thing as tongues of angels, that we can speak in the tongues of angels. He's being hyperbolic. He's exaggerating. And we know he's exaggerating is what we read next. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I can remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. Let me ask you a question. Did Paul know all mysteries? Did he understand all mysteries? Did he know all knowledge? Did he have all faith and remove mountains? Did he? The answer is obviously no. He's Again, he's, he's, he's exaggerating to prove a point. Verse 3. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but not have love, it profits me nothing. Did Paul give his body to be burned? No, he was beheaded. Did he bestow all his goods to, the, to feed the poor? We have no record that he did. So when he says, even if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, like is he? Did he speak? With, did he speak with with the tongues of angels? I think according to the context, he didn't. He's exaggerating to prove a point. What's his point? Again, I said that the greatest gift that Paul is talking about is the gift of love, and that's something that every believer should strive for. And so what he's saying is, because these Corinthian believers were so zealous for spiritual gifts, but they were not exercising them in love. So he says, if you don't have love, nothing like like none of your gifts even matter. And then he goes into being to being uh, hyperbo- hyperbolic. He's exaggerating. I can understand all mysteries. I can understand all knowledge. I can have all the faith in the world that I can remove mountains. But if I don't have love, then I'm nothing. I can, be, I can give my body to be burned, even if I was able to speak in, in the tongues of men and of angels. But if I don't have love, I'm nothing. And the other question is, is this the heavenly language? We've shown from the scriptures that tongues were known languages. Might not, might not be known to you, the ones speaking it, but they're known languages. We have no indication in the scriptures that speaking in tongues is a heavenly language. I reject that idea. I don't think that's biblical. I don't think you can make a biblical case for that. It's not a heavenly language. Again, it's God giving you the ability, the utterance to pray to him, to praise him in a language that you had not previously learned. So that's the episode. I pray this has been a blessing to you. I hope that you guys listen to the whole thing. I know I know this was a lengthy one, but I didn't I didn't want to do this in parts. I wanted to do it all in one episode. But I praise God for this episode. Uh, to Him be the glory. I just pray that if you're listening to this and you've had any of these false ideas about tongues, I I pray that, that the Word of God, that the Scriptures, have challenged you and caused you to rethink your positions on this. I just I pray that it's helped you. So that's the episode. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. Until next time, may the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. God bless.